Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with Elif Bechman about her latest novel, Either Or. This has been on my list for a long time, but can you tell me a little bit about the book? Okay, this book reunites us with Selen, the character who was oh, from the protagonist of The Idiot, yes, right. and she's now in her sophomore year at Harvard. She was in her freshman year in the previous book, and she's having some of the same problems that she had before, but I think there's more of a reckoning with things in this book and kind of uh, questions about what kind of life one should lead, uh, like the toxic nature of heterosexuality, which she's discovering through books, but also through her own experience. And just a kind of trying to figure out what she wants versus maybe what she's told she should want by the people around her. And again, you know, through through the many books she reads. It's a really, really funny book. I love The Idiot. And I felt like the woman in The Idiot, the, you know, selling the character was someone who I would want to be friends with and who was was so innocent and and earnest and sweet, but brilliant too. This book is, you know, she's the same. She's good, but she's getting a little bit more into her own in, in this story. Freshman year, everybody is really sweet and like open to kind of a bunch of different things. And then it's kind of as you move into that sophomore, junior year, you start wondering, wait, who are my actual friends? Like once you've left, you've left the kumbaya moment behind and you're kind of like, who are my ride or dies? And then also figuring out like what the fuck you're going to do with yourself. I can't wait to read the novel and can't wait to hear this conversation because that's a, definitely like a ripe period where you're really starting to step into what at least in your you know late teens, early 20s feels like real adulthood, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. I remember my sophomore year was kind of a, was a break from my um, freshman year. Yeah, like, yeah. well, also you feel like, oh, I can do this. And then it's the second question of like, wait, but what do I want to do right. with this? You know, right? Which I, which I didn't figure out for a long time. But <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> more than like my sophomore year to get to get that uh, information. But well, I showed up to NYU with a spreadsheet mapping out my double major and minor for the rest of my four years. Yeah, because I was oh the God. exact opposite. I was very Type A, which I don't recommend. You know, because I basically took nothing that was outside of those plans, you know, and so I didn't have this kind of classical liberal arts experience, even though everything was in the humanities. So it's like, <laughs> it's just a little bit different in that way. But yeah. You know, and, and as the protagonist in this book is also very type A, very organized, you know, overachiever, taking five classes instead of four, you know, she wants to take more classes than it'll allow her to. Um, exactly. Of that course, very I, much... which I had a hard time relating to because I was not a very good student in college and was spending my time um, very much entwined in the toxic world of heterosexuality. Although it didn't seem toxic to me, toxic at the time, wondrous <laughs> and uh, obsessive and worth uh, just you know waiting outside classrooms so I could meet up with the boys I had crushes on and stalking them at bars, and uh, that was. I think boys was one of my minors in, in college, but see where it got me, nowhere, so. 
Well, for all the type A-ness that I had, I, I still felt like there was so much growing up that I needed to do, you know, certainly in my 20s and even into my 30s. All right, well, let's get to that conversation. I can't wait to hear it. All right. I'm thrilled to be speaking with the writer Elif Batuman today. Elif Batuman is the author of the novel The Idiot, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2018, as well as The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them. Since 2010, she's been a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes on an incredible breadth of topics, from rent of families in Japan to the feminist filmmaker Celine Schiema, the allure of corpse flowers, and the wisdom of Stoic philosophers. She holds a PhD in comparative literature from Stanford University. She joins me to talk about her latest novel, Either Or. A sequel to The Idiot, the book follows Batuman's protagonist, Selin, now in her sophomore year at Harvard University in 1996. Selin is thoughtful and endearingly sincere in her efforts to understand the world around her. And most often she turns to the books she reads for her literature major, as well as for pleasure to do so, especially the titular work by Kierkegaard, Either Or, which allows her to consider the merits of an aesthetic life versus an ethical one. But it's the seducer's diary portion of Kierkegaard's book that she finds herself most interested in and horrified by. It helps her explain the mystifying behavior of her crush, Ivan, with whom nothing much of consequence has happened. Though she's preoccupied by love and sex, Selen's quest for understanding by the book's end leads her away from campus into her native Turkey and then Russia, where she finally and victoriously finds herself doing exactly what she wants. Thanks so much for being here, Elif. Thank you for having me. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about why you wanted to continue Selen's story. The decision to write a sequel came really early in the, I guess, publication process of The Idiot. So The Idiot came out in 2017 and the galleys were out in 2016 in like August 2016, which was right around the time of the pussy grabbing Trump situation. And then 2017, in retrospect, it feels to me kind of like the Me Too year, even though that didn't happen until the fall, but it feels like the beginning was already the lead up to that in some way. And I think that the decision to write a sequel was really informed by that mood. So when The Idiot came out, I didn't really think of it as a political book and it wasn't really received as one. And as I was promoting it during those months, I began to realize that it actually was quite political and that nothing is really more political than the story of how young women are depoliticized, which is what I then started to see the book as being about. There's a part near the beginning where Céline learns about government majors and that she finds out that people call them gov jocks. And she's like, are they going to be our rulers someday? And then during the Kavanaugh hearing, I was really, because, you know, he's talking about how he busted his butt to get onto the basketball team. And I was like, oh my God, the gov jocks are our rulers. And we can see now in politics what happens when women of my generation, Christine Blasey Ford became a psychologist and I went into literature and it's, you know, this was a really common thing that women were driven away from politics and from government. I could see that there in The Idiot, but it wasn't as explicit as I wanted it to be. I hadn't been thinking about it consciously. So one big motivation to write a sequel was to kind of go back to that period of time 
which by the way, everyone was going back to the nineties at that time. You know, it was like we were revisiting Monica Lewinsky and Anita Hill and millions of women were, I think, going back in time and retelling their own sexual history and national history in a different way than we'd been thinking about it when it happened and either or was kind of part of that. So what I really wanted to do in writing the sequel was to go back to that period of time and to explore and to reconstruct and in some way to reenact how I became a person who thought of myself as a literature person and not a politics person and where that led me. Yeah. And it's kind of, you give yourself a difficult task because I think the revisiting of stories from the nineties under certain revelations of the present is that we can fully explore the ways in which we were blindsided, but because you have the perspective of Selwyn, which is not an older perspective, it's Mm -hmm. still of someone who doesn't quite understand the way the world works. I mean, she has Mm -hmm. ideas about things. She's very smart, but she's certainly naive in a lot of ways. And she's just young and there would be no way to fully grasp the whole system at that age. I mean, it would be amazing if one could, but that's something that kind of comes later. So maybe talk about the drawbacks and the advantages of staying in her perspective Mm -hmm. of that younger perspective. Oh yeah, that's such a great point. So I, the writer in, you know, 2017 to 2020, 2021, I have the benefit of knowing all the things that a person learns between the age of 20 and 40. And I also had the benefit of knowing some of the things that have become part of cultural knowledge in 2020 that were not a part of broad cultural knowledge in the 1990s. There are a lot of things that radical feminists already knew, but they didn't become common knowledge. You know, like nobody was using the word patriarchy when I was in college. Nobody was talking about rape culture, but the feelings were all there. And part of the project for me, so I think there's a certain temptation when we think about the past, either our own past or the national past, is to think like, oh, in the past, like I was really dumb or I was really ignorant or we didn't know anything. You know, like the scene in Mad Men where they're just throwing garbage on the grass, like the past was so ignorant. And for me, a really, a really integral part of the project was to go back into that earlier self with empathy and curiosity, because I actually was really curious. You know, I didn't grow up under a rock. I had access to a great education. How is it that I didn't read Shulamith Firestone until 2018? How is it that I didn't, you know, start using words like patriarchy and rape culture? I mean, I know why I didn't use the words because they're annoying words, but the concepts are vital. Why didn't I have access to those concepts? And the access was there. It just wasn't presented. In a, the invitations weren't made in a way that they seemed inviting to me at the time. And I wasn't dumb exactly. Like I'm exactly as dumb now as I was then. I just have more experience and more information. So I really wanted to go back to that period of time and reenact. So, you know, rape culture is never mentioned in the book. Patriarchy, let alone heteropatriarchy, are not mentioned in the book. But I wanted to show... In some places, it was a difficult balance to try to invite the reader today to be making judgments that Céline at that time would not be able to make. So it was kind of some dramatic irony because we know more than she knew then. But I always wanted her conclusions to seem plausible within the world of the book. Yeah, I can see that. And also, maybe you could just speak a little bit to like what's exciting about mm-hmm. someone who's younger 
because she doesn't really suffer fools. Like, as I was saying, she is really smart and she does, there are certain things that make her uncomfortable, but maybe she doesn't exactly just know why they do or why she's exactly. So, I mean, it occurred to me, you know, that she and her friends all around sex and around these guys that they're dating or seeing, they're not finding much pleasure. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, they're not very happy in the situation, but yet it doesn't seem like there's an alternative out there that they're aware of. Like, oh, the yeah, they, they don't know that their pleasure is the point. They don't know that that's a priority or that it could be a priority. Yeah. So how was that? I mean, again, just working with that kind of constraint, did you ever feel like you wanted to give them something else that you wanted oh, to yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> certainly discover, oh, we could have sex with each other. I mean, was that an impulse at all to kind of push beyond the bounds of what maybe you experienced as a college student? I didn't want to push against the bounds of what I experienced as a college student because I wanted to show how the person I was then was not capable of pushing against those bounds. So there is actually a conversation where Selin says to Svetlana, did you ever think it might be easier if we just date each other? And Svetlana kind of thinks about it and she's like, no, here are the reasons why we can't do that. And Selin's like, oh yeah, you're right. Like love has to be like it's not just a slumber party with your best friend. It's this like great drama of suffering (laughs) that leads to death. And I did have a temptation to come in with the things that I know now. It's funny, while I was writing this book, I was thinking a lot about the filmmaker Celine Siama, who you mentioned at the beginning. I was really influenced by her films and I had pitched a profile of her to The New Yorker, which then got postponed because of COVID. So it only ended up happening recently and it just came out a few months ago. But this was something I talked about with Celine Siama a bunch in Paris last year. She had said that there was a scene in one of her earlier films that she didn't describe to herself at the time as a rape. She just thought of it as like, oh, sex is so sad when you're a teenager. And then like years later, like last year and recently, she was like, I wonder how I would shoot a rape scene if I was going to do one. Like, how would I do it? And then she was like, wait, I already did one. And that was that. So we were talking a lot about having the language now to describe experiences that already felt bad, but you didn't really understand how bad they were or that they were necessary. And I was really obsessed with like, cause I was interviewing her, you know? So I got to be like, well, what year did you know this? And what year did you know that? Cause I was obsessed with the idea that because she had been like identified as a lesbian, her whole conscious life, basically, she must have been like onto this stuff much earlier than me. And she was kind of in general, much less interested than I was in like finding that this date, I knew this and this date, I do that. She was like, why do you want to do this archaeology? And so what she said was that the language came later, but the feelings were already there and you don't need the language to get at the feelings. And that was kind of a guiding principle for me in the book, especially after. So at some early point, I think what you're getting at is like, wasn't it frustrating to write about this person who doesn't know all this stuff and who's who doesn't have access to this information? And isn't it frustrating to watch her go into these harm-causing situations? And it was frustrating. And I did feel a temptation to step in and to explain what I know and what I think. And originally I had a plan for, you know, Kierkegaard's either or is actually, there's two halves of the book. The first half is about the aesthetic life and the second half is about the ethical life. And they're written in all different genres and the second half just like completely contradicts the first half. So I thought it would be really cool for either or for half of it to be a novel set in the 90s and the other half to be an essay from my point of view going through all of the 2017, 2018 stuff. But what I found was that in the end, you know, I might come back and do some essays like that later, but 
the novel just expanded and I felt like it didn't actually need that, that the essays actually made it weaker because the essays are me coming in and telling people this is what's wrong and this is what you should be thinking. And the novel was Selin looking at things and feeling, you know, the whole thing was written from a place of outrage and to some extent anger. And the me in the essays was like outraged and angry and like explaining why and being like, this is why all these things are wrong. And the anger in the Selin part of the book was Selin looking at things and being like, what? Like, actually, like, I have to drink that? Like, I have to put that in my body? What are you talking about? And that just felt like a much more productive and generative and funny and fun place to operate from. So that's why I stuck to what she knows in the book. I actually have a quote from that interview with Celine that I wanted to read to you. You write in it, I found myself questioning many things I thought were at the core of my identity, including my love of literature. Why hadn't I thought more about politics? How had I based so much of my worldview on Anna Karenina, a book about a woman who has to die because she's in love with a guy who isn't as smart as she is? I'd always thought of myself as a feminist because I had never believed that men were better than women. Yet, I also had thought it was part of the rich, ineluctable fabric of the human condition for women to ruin their lives over unsatisfactory men. I just love that part of the profile. And, you know, I kind of see it play out in either or that a lot of the time I'm thinking, oh, like she just has the wrong reading list, that she's this girl (laughs) who's taking so much from literature that I think she kind of misunderstands the role or the relationship between life and literature. But a lot of it seems to me that she's just actually like reading the wrong books Mm -hmm. to explain to her her position in the world. So maybe you could talk about the books that are central to her reading in either or and what worldview she is garnering from them. Yeah, the books could have been different. And I don't know why they weren't, you know, like I really wanted this to be a thought experiment for myself. Like why did I end up with this intellectual and sexual and emotional and literary formation. So I chose books that I had actually, for kind of biographical reasons, like I really did read either or Andre Breton's Nadja, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which also is about living an aesthetic life and also has this guy who seduces this girl and then she kills herself. I was really interested in the idea of the aesthetic life and I thought of the literary canon as being really produced by men and you would read women for the sake of reading women. But if you were just going to read what's the greatest without any concerns for diversity, I had this very 90s way of thinking about it. And I have lots of explanations for why that might be. I mean, my background is Turkish American and like the rest of the world, but perhaps more so, Turkey is really a place where men are more valuable than women. And, you know, my whole family was, whether or not they agree with it or think they agree with it, we were all affected by that way of thinking, by patterns of thinking that I didn't really understand until I read The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, which I think I must have read excerpts of it in college, but I didn't. And I I think I even thought that I knew what it meant, which is that we view men as primary and women as secondary and less important. But I didn't understand how that translates into women's subjugation by romance, into the feeling that I have to be affiliated somehow with a member of this higher class. Like I have to be dating someone. And that's why you always have to be in a relationship or else you're not like living your life fully. I don't know why I didn't get that when I was in college. Also, Simone de Beauvoir, when it comes to the aesthetic and the ethical life, she really kind of slices through it in this book called The Ethics of Ambiguity, 
I don't know why that didn't get to me. But yeah, so I think part of it is family stuff. Part of it is general devaluing women and not noticing those things. Part of it is, I think, anxiety about, you know, it was really important for me and it's really important for Céline to get into Harvard. And in the book, it's clear that this is sort of for Céline's mom, that her mom wants to think that, you know, if Céline got into Harvard, it means I could have gotten into Harvard. And one thing I've been thinking about is the extent to which so many of the students at Harvard of my classmates who I remember were there in some way because of their parents or to make up for their parents. Like it's not doing that application is horrible. It's not like a normal thing to do. Like you wouldn't do it if you didn't have some horrible reason to do it. Both my parents kind of went to the Harvard of Turkey and then they came here and no one had heard of it, which was more of a problem for my mom than for my dad because of institutionalized sexism. And I was very conscious of like, wanting to get to this level of the great universal, the really rigorous thing. Like I didn't want to go to a liberal arts college where I would be nurtured. I wanted to go to like Harvard because that would be that. And I didn't want to read books that were especially for women. I wanted to read like the great books, the hardest books. And those were books by men. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Elif Batuman, author of Either Or, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have LA author and editor Dan Lopez with us on the line today. Dan is the author most recently of the novel The Show House, and he is also my husband, which should not be held against him. Dan joins us today to give us this week's book recommendation. So Dan, what book are you recommending? Hi, Eric. Glad to be here. Today I'm recommending Cuba, an American History by Ada Ferrer. This is a book that traces the history of Cuba from its colonial days, and even before that actually, from the indigenous people who lived on the island before the Spanish arrived, up through present day, basically the presidency of Joe Biden. And it's called an American history because, as Ferrer shows us, what it means to be the Republic of Cuba, what it means to be the people of Cuba, um, has been to a large extent dictated by foreign policies of first the Spanish and then later the United States. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of it. You should read the book to get all the nitty gritty of it. But as you know, Eric, my family is from Cuba, so I'm always very interested in learning the history of it. And there are just so many fascinating little tidbits. Like I was particularly drawn to the coverage of the Cuban Missile Crisis. My family was in Cuba at the time, um, and I've never really gotten a satisfying explanation from my mom as to what it was like to be there at the time. So it was really cool to read Ferrer's prose that brought it to life for me in a way that I hadn't before. So that's just one example. There's all sorts of great histories in this book. And if you're interested in American imperialism, if you're interested in the history of the Caribbean, if you're interested in just like the history of Cuba itself and the Cuban people, the culture, the food, all that kind of stuff, how it came to be, this is definitely a, a read for you. And she's, like I said, Ada Ferrer is, is a fantastic stylist. So you'll really appreciate the writing as well. I mean, did it change anything for you in terms of thinking about Cuban history, which I know you've read a lot about, to have it kind of framed as an imperial history rather than necessarily like a national history? Mm, yes and no. I was aware of the U.S.'s involvement 
in the island. I mean, growing up, you just were aware of that. Um, especially I grew up in Florida, so there's a lot of that going around. Mm-hmm. But the particulars of the story and like the various revolutions that happened and how the U.S. would intervene did add nuance to a history already new. But for those of you that, that don't know anything about the, the U.S. involvement in Cuba, seeing it as an American history, it can be quite eye-opening. All right, that sounds really great. Can you give us the title and the author one more time, please? Absolutely. It's Cuba, an American History by Ada Ferrer. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Dan Lopez, author of The Show House. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Elif Batuman, author of Either Or. It doesn't seem like it's any fault of Selens for reading those books because those are the books that are held up as the great books. And I mean, they are, and they're great books. It's not, it's not that they're not great books, but they are, but they are just very much baked into a certain kind of perspective that might teach a woman her place in the world that a different kind of book would not. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I'm really interested for her, you know, I, I almost wonder if part of this story, uh, as well as in The Idiot, is trying to ask us questions about like the relationship of literature to life. You know, Mm -hmm. how much is it really a reflection of life? And also how much is it an art form? You know, is it a story? It's not that to try to go to books to learn about life might be like the wrong order of things. You Mm -hmm. know, that that that's her first impulse is to Mm -hmm. kind of look in a book first and then look out and see how that plays out. But that, mm-hmm. that might not give her the clearest sense of how things really are. So is, mm-hmm. is that something, was it, was that a question for you? Like, are, are we kind of watching a folly in some way with her or is that, or is mm-hmm. that just her personality and, and she's just so smart. She loves to read and that's how she processes the world. That's another really interesting question. I mean, I think that So Céline is someone who grew up with a lot of different competing stories. Part of the meaning of either or is her parents have this custody case and she has to sort of decide between them. And so she's getting these two pictures of reality that are, you know, basically mutually exclusive, very, you know, very opposed. And one is coming from her mom and one is coming from her dad. On top of that, she's growing up in two different cultures. Like she's mostly in the U.S., but there's this influence from Turkey and there are certain, she's aware of Turkish ways of describing the world, not being the same as American ways. She's getting a lot of conflicting information. And I think as a young person, she's under a lot of stress. Like that's a situation that could theoretically cause a person a lot of panic, like what's real, nothing's real, am I real? And I think that from books, she finds a way to a, a potential way to reconcile all of those contradictions. This is like at the end in the part where she's reading Portrait of a Lady, she's thinking about this where, spoiler alert, at the end she, she reads Portrait of a Lady and thinks about the novel. But <laughs> but, but there, there's, uh, she, she, the novel helped her to survive by giving her a plane where she could, you know, juxtapose all of those voices and imagine herself being the person moderating between them with some kind of generosity and good humor, which is like, it's a powerful position too, which is not the position that's available to as a child. As a child, you're not moderating anything with generosity and humor. You're just being, you know, 
moved around like a football. So it, it was a coping mechanism. I think one thing that Céline doesn't realize yet and that <laughs> I'm only recently beginning to realize and that I think ties into your question is that like books are the product of like writers and writers are these really specific people who are readers as children. And I think of literature as a kind of coping mechanism that for me, it helped me to survive a difficult period of my childhood. But the message that I got from those books wasn't, um, you know, like Tolstoy shows how everyone's interests are conflicting and everyone has has good intentions, but they kind of cancel each other out and things have a way of working out that, you know, in this big swirling tapestry that we can't really identify anything as the cause, um, which can feel great when you're a kid and you don't have that much agency, you know, to see your own life that way. But then when you become an adult, you theoretically do have the agency to, to change your circumstances. But if you got used to thinking of your life as this tapestry of swirling circumstances, that might not be where you go. You know, like I looked at Tolstoy's picture. He's very clear about cruelty, about the cruelty of the class system and serfdom and the double standard of women and the way that children suffer on his, on his son is this incredible picture of this. I think he's eight, Serioja. He saw this stuff really clearly. He just, at the time that he wrote Anna Karenina, he did not see it as being that alterable. And when you read a book like that, you know, one message you could take is like, wow, everything's really fucked up. I have to like, how am I going to help make things less fucked up? And another message you could think is like, oh, this book makes me feel so much better about everything being fucked up. I can't wait until I'm old enough to write books that make other people feel better in the same way. And that's kind of what, like, that's kind of what a writer is. Like that's, yeah. That's a good, good way to break it down for sure. Yeah. I think that's, (laughs) that's true. That's really true. The aspect of this, there was one part where you described like the sound of a VCR rewinding (laughs) <laughs> you know, where I like got like chills on my, and I just I'm like, oh God, I haven't heard that in so long, but it, it's so, I remember it so well. I was curious in both these books, like what kind of material, you know, I noticed, you know, in the back, like there is a real breakdown of where mm-hmm. some of the things in the book come from, um, how you kind of excavated your own archives or mm-hmm. your own memories, or what was the process like in terms of kind of creating this verisimilitude to, to 1996. Um, mm. And if you were actually like, you know, using old emails, you know, even, even the way a way of email has changed a lot in the last decades. So, you know, if, if you were looking at actual source material to, to write these books. That's another great question. With the materiality and the video rewinding or like the description of there's a microfilm machine that she goes on to read the old book review of Prozac Nation because it wasn't on the internet yet. A lot of that is actually informed by my partner who's a video editor and she also did graphic design. So she is like, she can look at any piece of print and tell you like what year it was printed or like if it's a fake that's trying to look old, but isn't actually old. And she's like obsessive about historical detail. Like we'll watch a movie that's like, she watched that movie that was about like Queen Elizabeth. And she was just like, I couldn't even watch it because they were using a pen that wouldn't have existed, like a kind of brand of pen that wouldn't have existed then. So definitely talking to her. And she's very like, when she tells stories about the past, they're like really rich in these material details. So I think insofar as there's like audio visual details, it probably comes from her. Um, With the emails, I did have a bunch of the original 
emails that the idiot was based on that I had printed out at some point. I didn't have a whole ton of other emails and I had actually forgotten what those screens look like. Like there's this telnet function called Unix talk that Sidin uses. And I, I remembered that the screen was split, but I couldn't remember exactly what it looked like. Um, so I did a lot of searching online and, um, fortunately when it's stuff about technology, it's, you know, someone will have made some museum of telnet history and with screen caps of everything. So I did use that. I, I was able at, um, my mom recently moved apartments and she had a lot of stuff at her apartment that I then came into possession of. She had old, um, papers that I wrote for college from that year. She had some of my old um, like Russian study materials and also um, a few of my books, like actually the copy of Nadja that I read that year she had. And it was crazy because I thought that that copy had been lost years ago. So I'd bought a new one. And when I looked at the old one and the new one, I'd underlined a lot of the same passages. It was crazy. It, um, yeah, that was actually really exciting to see that I'd underlined the same passages. Although, you know, now I try to like write kind of discreetly and there's just little marks in the margin. Whereas like in the 1990s edition, it's like these huge lines and like big question marks and like, what? <laughs> it was kind of fun to see that. That's so sweet. Um, what about the, you know, there's this part where her and Svetlana are like bullet bullet pointing all these topics of conversation and things that they mm-hmm. wonder about. Um, was that, I would, that just seems so specific. Was that based on things that you actually thought about? You know, like I thought they were just such perfect mm-hmm. things that like y- younger people would be interested in. And that, you know, I still thought some of the questions were interesting. Like what's charisma? Is it a form uh-huh. or is it a content? Um, and even... I think some of the attitudes, another thing is like this attitude that they have towards other women, I also thought was really interesting of um, kind of like undercutting other mm-hmm. women that are beautiful and being dubious of them as though like they can't, yeah. they can't be anything else. They can't have any other quality and constantly feeling threatened, like almost annihilatingly threatened by other women. Yeah. Yeah. Which I have um, to, yeah. Which I have to say, I still think unfortunately for me there's some resonance there like it's not that's it of course they, yeah it's, it's 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 drilled into us like we can't not have it it's like it's a it's another side of tokenism is like there's only room for a few of us and yeah and and the ones who like women who are yeah I'm not even going to get into all the pathologies that we have about women who are super beautiful um yeah actually I to some extent those bullet points came from, I reread a lot of the books that I read then. This was actually a really fun project was to reread books that I read then, or even books that I hadn't read then that I wanted to have sit and read. Like, I don't think I read Proust that year, but I wanted her to read it and to not like it because now I love Proust, but I know I didn't, or I wouldn't have then. And I think it was when I was rereading Portrait of a Lady um, by Henry James. A lot of the things that So the Svetlana, the relationship with Svetlana is based on a real friendship that I had in college that was like a very close friendship where we talked about everything. And I don't know if I wrote it down or I don't necessarily have records of it, but I really remember it. Like a lot of those things are very present to me. And when I was rereading Portrait of a Lady, I could kind of, if 
I put myself in my in that mental space and I tried to remember how it would have seemed to me then. I could kind of remember how you know, this friend and I, we really framed ourselves in order to not compete. We kind of framed ourselves as like opposites, like you're like this and I'm like that. And that became kind of like the theme of our friendship. And so I could just kind of use that, like to look at different parts of the book and think like, how would we have parsed that and sorted it out? Because everything in that list is like, there's a question and then it's like, you know, is charisma a form or a content? So most Some of them, we, the Selin and Svetlana agree, but a lot of them, it's like Selin thinks it's like this and Svetlana thinks it's like that. And it was, um, it was very easy for me to get back into that space just by looking at the kinds of things I would have looked at back then. Yeah. And there's also kind of discussions about affection and power and relationships that, mm-hmm. that seem apropos to other aspects of the book. I wanted to ask about the, the guidebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's, I mean, I know that is like a Harvard thing, right? Like lots of people wrote for that. What is mm-hmm. it? Let, let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. That, um, but I thought that was an interesting contrast to the literature in the book mm-hmm. that the guidebook has this very tactile relationship to the world. And it really is fa- It's not about, you know, assumptions or philosophy. It's, it's tactile. Mm-hmm. Like you go, mm-hmm. you see if the address is correct. You, you know, you see if the things on offer are correct and, and it's a small, all, you know, all alteration. If it has to be, it doesn't really take a lot of, um, philosophizing, but it gets her at least like really interacting with the world. I thought in such a beautiful way, was that something you were aware of as you were writing that section? Was the guidebook something that you did or where did you get the guidebook? Um, yeah, the guidebooks are real. I did. I was a researcher writer for Let's Go in Anatolia in 19, I think 1997 or 1996. No, 1997. And um, I, I was thinking about that a lot as I was writing the book. I thought of the book as Selin is trying to figure out the rules for how to live. And she's getting information from all these different sources. Like she's trying to analyze the things that her friends say and be like, okay, like, and then sort of reverse engineer the rules that they must be following. And she's looking at her classes and she's thinking about things that her family has told her and she's reading these books. And one place that she keeps kind of getting frustrated by is actually philosophy, which is the only kind of discipline that's explicitly about that. It's about how to live. So naturally she's drawn to it, but it doesn't seem to, you know, she, there's a part where she's talking about Kant and the categorical imperative and the idea that there's one rule that everyone can follow. And she's like, well, how could that, she's just very conscious of herself as someone who like was always an exception to the rule and that something would work for everyone else and it wouldn't work for her. And she was like, this is going to be like that too. This is going to be another one of those things. How can there be one rule that works for everything? And in the end, by the end, what she's calling into question is really the idea of like, what are rules? Like, do they, can everyone follow them? Is that the point of what a rule is? In the let's go part, she like, you know, she takes some, she's fact checking some hiking route and she gets lost. And then she's like, okay, so like, does that mean that I changed the description of the route? Like, would another person get lost or was it just me? And like, how can someone else replicate the experience that I had? And how can we actually like give advice to other people? And it's it's a question that I was really thinking about a lot as I was writing the book. I don't think it's as straightforward as we think, like how to make rules and how to give other people advice. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot. But there is 
you know, information that can be verified. Do you, would yes, you that's that? another, that's another thing that's great news for her. Like this was something that when I started writing for the New Yorker, I didn't know about fact-checking. And at first I've, I found it a little bit alarming. Like someone goes on the phone and calls everyone you talk to, like, and in other countries, they they don't necessarily have these things. Like I remember I was reporting a story in Turkey once and then I was like, okay, the fact checker is going to call you. And the guy was like, okay. And then he called me on the phone and he's like, you know, Elif Hanum, you really have to change jobs because these people you're working for don't trust you. They don't believe anything that you're saying. Like I was just on the phone for an hour with this person who's going over everything in tiny detail. So like there is a kind of like defensive posture that it's kind of natural to have around fact-checking that also comes up in how people talk about it. But my immediate feeling, like when I started interacting with fact-checkers was like huge relief. Like, oh my God. So you mean I didn't make all this stuff up? Like, you know, cause they come to you with like, even if they have like, you know, several pages, like basically they, the, the person exists, like the, the amount of stuff that they can verify. And the fact that, um, I guess I grew up with sort of like an overinflated idea of like everyone's perspective is different and also all stories are subjective, I guess. Cause everyone in my family would kind of debate about the past and, the only way I had of understanding it or of, you know, surviving was just to think we can never know. Everyone has a different version. And in a way it's true. We can never know the past. Everyone has a different version, but in another way, there are things that you can check. Like there is consensus reality and it's a huge relief. It's a huge relief if you have been living under the assumption that everything is kind of on you. So I think that's what Celine feels also when she gets to do some fact-checking for the, for, for the New Yorker. I think that's what Celine feels also when she gets to do some fact-checking for Let's Go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and of course, I have to ask, you know, are, you, are, are we going to continue with Celine as this, you know, just, just one of now or the second of a larger series? Is she reading Proust? Like not only because you're <laughs> curious about what she would think, but just because um, that's kind of a hint that this is going to be at least two more volumes because she has two <laughs> more years of school to go. Oh, you know, I really want to return to Celine. I don't think I'm going to do the next two years of college just because these books have taken me a very long time. And I, you know, if I do it as a series, I... I, I want to see what, where she ends up in her thirties when she's like really like in the work world and um, in, in adult life. And I, I won't get there if I keep doing her, you know, like I'll die of old age when she's like buying her first Ikea sofa or whatever. Like um, I do hope to return. I've actually, I've been working on a lot of sort of book type projects over the past few years. And some of them have been kind of more like essays or like, memoir kind of stuff. And I've actually been thinking that I might want to revisit some of that material and change it from memoir to actually being about Céline, just because I now feel like something about Céline has let me tap into this state of knowing less than I know now, which I find really productive for writing. So I do think I might want to write more books from that, from that subjectivity. Excellent. Well, yeah, it seems too early to, to let her go. <laughs> For sure. Um, I'm glad you guys have more time together, possibly in the future, <laughs> and that we will too. Thank you so much, Elif. It was really nice to speak with you. Thank you. This has been so much fun. That was Elif Batman. Her new novel is called Either Or.
Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.